This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. The aquarium industry is truly international. Although many fish come from farms and collection points in Florida and other parts of the U.S., numerous species also arrive from points around the globe. Australia has its own thriving aquarium industry and hobby and is home to some of the most beautiful and prized freshwater and marine aquarium fish in the world including the popular rainbow fishes and the stunning leafy sea dragons. My guest today is Josiah Pitt, Operations and Supply Chain Manager for Aquarium Industries, the major aquarium livestock source for Australia. Join us as we learn more about ornamental fish in the land down under. We'll be right back after these messages. It's designerpetsweaters.com. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready. Large or small, we fit them all. Designerpetsweaters.com Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Josiah Pitt, Operations and Supply Chain Manager of Aquarium Industries, the major source of aquarium livestock for Australia. Hey, Josiah. Thanks again for joining us today. Not a problem, Roy. Glad to be here. You've got a really interesting life story, and you've been all over the globe and have really done some pretty fascinating work. But before we talk shop, I want to find out a little more about Josiah Pitt the Kid. Now, in previous conversations, you've mentioned to me you've had some really early life ocean experiences fishing with your uncle. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I guess um, from about the age of five, during school holidays, mum would uh, send me off to grandmother's, being a typical five-year-old, bit of a handful. And um, she was, uh, grandmother lived on the beach and um, was only about five minutes from my uncle's house, actually, who was a... uh, professional fisherman down in uh, southern Australia and he'd often or would go out and catch crayfish and, and snapper depending on the season. So um, I, from a young age, was sort of around the, uh, around the beach, around the ocean, around the waters uh, around Australia with creeks and lakes as well. But uh, I guess one of the things that got me attracted to the marine environment was that there was a bit of a rule on the boat uh, when we'd go fishing at the end of, uh, end of the day on a Friday and that was the last pot that we'd uh, that we'd catch, everything that was in that pot was uh, was cooked up and and was basically eaten on the way back in. It was, I guess, a reward for the for the deckies for doing a, a hard day's work. And um, let me assure you, there's nothing better than uh, freshly cooked crayfish straight out of the pot. So um, that was interesting, and I really sort of enjoyed that. And um, one of the other stories that uh, comes to mind, I guess, is um, 
during the, the line fishing, we'd be chasing for snapper. The fishing method that my uncle used to use was more of a drift fishing rather than fishing at anchor. And so if you'd hooked onto that, that monster snapper, by the time you landed it in the boat, you'd drifted half, quarter of a mile from where the actual hookup site. So all those pesky tourists that were hanging around with their binoculars trying to work out where you've just landed the big fish would race over to the area that we'd uh, just landed that fish unbeknown to them. We actually caught it away, so he wasn't giving away his, um, his secret fishing spot, I guess. He was being pretty clever there. Yeah, it certainly was. Um, you know, we, we were uh, in, a, in an area that was heavily populated with uh, tourists in the, in the summer season, and, you know, I was down there during school holidays, as I mentioned, so um, the commercial boats had a particular marking, and so the tourist boats, were, it was like a radar beacon. They just honed straight in and try and uh, steal all the secret spots. Now, tell us about your first aquarium fish in your, uh, in your first aquarium. What was that set up? Well, I think as I uh, spoke to you about this when I was in the States recently, I guess it depends on, on how you define your first aquarium, really. Again, as a kid playing around down the beach and, and the rock pools, you know, as an inquisitive little kid, as, as most kids do when they're around the beach, you pick up little critters and you take them back home, usually in the form of shells. But because we live sort of right on the beach... Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd take them back and the thing is I'd generally return them the next day because grandmother would say that, you know, we don't have the right food for these and they're, they're best left in the ocean. So uh, I don't know if you'd call a, uh, a Tupperware container or, a, or an upside-down Coke bottle, uh, which I used overnight as a first aquarium, but that's probably where it first, uh, first started. In terms of the actual first fish tank, from memory, I think it was a guppy tank. It might have been, a, a, from memory, a, a small little tank in my bedroom had four or five guppies because they were, they were quite colourful, um, which is probably my, my first memory. But spending so much time around the, uh, the beach and fishing, I really wanted a, a marine tank, I guess. And back then, I guess the technology wasn't available like it is today with the access to, to protein skimmers and UV lights that um, you, know, you can order online these days and have them arrive the next day. So that made it a bit, uh, a bit difficult. Plus, as a youngster, we travelled around Australia uh, for Dad's work a fair bit. So again, having aquariums was quite difficult. So I guess when I really got into the passion uh, and the hobby was probably when I was 17. Uh, I moved to Townsville in North Queensland to uh, start my university. So I was about 17. And um, being in Townsville, we were right on the edge of the, the Great Barrier Reef and a lot of friends were, were involved in, in fishing in the area and doing their own research. So it gave me great access to a whole variety of, of different corals and, and unique endemic Australian reef fishes, which made it very easy, I guess. I, I was blessed in that regards that uh, I was getting a lot of this stuff for free, to be honest, as well. So at the end, I think I had a, a six and an eight-foot marine tank when I was still living at home and um, started to become an issue where I was taking over the, the bottom half of the house with uh, all my tubs of water and, and, and tanks everywhere and water-changing apparatus. But yeah, I'd say, Roy, probably 17 and being that reef tank is what I really consider my first tank. Okay. Both, uh, as you mentioned, really a beautiful opportunity to get a lot of really nice fish and uh, for you definitely pretty cheap, which a lot of people here would really probably die for. So you got really interested in uh, marine life. You got your degree in marine biology and aquaculture and I know you work for Jean-Michel Cousteau as well. Can you tell us real briefly about that? Yeah, that in itself is quite an interesting story. I um, 
throughout my university uh, doing a marine biology degree back then, most people wanted to uh, either go and save the reef or, or work with the dolphins. And um, so one of the most ultimate jobs, I guess, was, was working for, for the Custos. And um, I remember a friend of mine running into the, the computer lab at the end of third year in hysterics. You know, I've got the job, I've got the job. And we finally calmed her down. She said, oh, I've just, I've just been accepted to uh, work as the resident marine biologist at Jean-Michel Cousteau's Fiji Island Resorts in Fiji and we were just ecstatic obviously for her. I jokingly said at the end of the conversation, oh, when you leave, give me a call and I'll, I'll take over and um, unbeknown and to me, she called me a year later and said, look, it's, it was only a year post, I'm, I'm leaving, are, are you really interested in the job? And of course, I let out some similar hysterics and said, yeah, that'd be fantastic. And um, I still had to go through the interview process and, and submit my, uh, my resume to be considered for the job. But um, long story short, I guess I, um, I was got the job. So um, it was interesting in terms of the interview processes. Uh, I guess unlike yourself, Roy, the interviewer failed to understand the time concept between the States and the US. So he continued to ring me at about 3am, which um, when I was in the middle of writing up my uh, honours thesis, wasn't very well appreciated given that I was only sleeping between two and five. But uh, look, at the end of the day, I, um, I got the job. I went over for a year and, and I'd have to say it was probably one of the, the, the best years of my life. So what did you do over there? My role was, I guess, to interpret the reef to the guests. Um, this was a, a five-star resort which uh, attracted a lot of people, mainly from, from the States because head office was in, um, in the States. And uh, I would go diving two or three times a day. And during the surface intervals, um, I'd bring up little critters, sea stars, basket stars, basically anything that, uh, that we could catch easily, which was uh, resilient enough to, to be retained on the boat for, for half an hour to an hour during the surface interval. And we'd do a bit of a talk about how that particular critter interacts with, uh, with the reef and, and its role on the reef, as well as doing reef flat walks, interpretive guides through the rainforest, um, taking people on kayaks, doing presentations at night, slideshows and, and showing some of the guests what was around that area. It was one of the top five dive sites in the world. But, but some of the guests, if they're only there for five or six days, were by no means able to see everything that, that we had to offer. So we used to do a lot of slideshows at night as well. So that's incredible. It sounded like a, a one-year paid vacation pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. That's, uh, that's probably yeah. a good way uh, of summarizing actually, Roy. Well, I definitely know you've done a lot more and you've done a lot of work with aquaculture as well, but I want to um, take us to Aquarium Industries now, your, your, uh, your present position. What was the road that led you to uh, Aquarium Industries, given that you had most recently done more work with, I guess, food and pearl aquaculture? I guess, um, as you pointed out, after Fiji, I went on and, and completed the PhD and then worked in the pearling industry for, for four or five years over in Indonesia and Tonga and throughout the South Pacific. But um, with that sort of lifestyle, for listeners that are unfamiliar, it's very remote, it's very isolated. Back in those times, the internet wasn't as widely as available as it is now. And, um, you know, it became... I guess learning to a certain extent, despite the fact that, you know, I had upwards of uh, 150 workers on, on the Pearl Farm, you know, they were all Indonesian based and um, there was no real social life. So I guess I got sick and tired of, of the isolation, the remoteness, to be honest. So I moved back to Melbourne in Australia. And I hooked up with a really good friend of mine, a guy by the name of Dosso Sullivan, who does a lot of um, training and 
process improvement to businesses in Australia. And one of the jobs that he had at the time was was Aquarium Industries. And so I, I went in there essentially as a sub-consultant and uh, looked at their standard operating procedures that they had, looked at training a lot of their staff into a certificate three and a certificate four in um, aquaculture. It was a three-month uh, gig and at the end of the three month, the CEO who was uh, at the site at the time said, look, we actually got a position uh, opening. Um, we're really impressed with what you've done over the last three months. Would you would you consider it? And um, with the fact of, I guess, the promise of full-time work over the solding work, I, I sort of jumped at it. And my main role at the time was to ensure that the company was um, meeting its biosecurity obligation with its quarantine facility. And um, within the first three months of working there, a position as the purchasing manager became available. Um, so I took that on in, in 2000 and Six, and then in 2007, I was um, given the position which I currently have now that you mentioned before as the uh, operations and supply chain manager for for the organisation. So tell us real briefly about Aquarium Industries, uh, the company. You know, just some some basic information and the role in uh, Australia's industry. We're one of uh, two large importers distributors, so I guess we've got one major competitor. There's probably four or five smaller competitors. Now, to put that into perspective, we've got about 3,500-litre aquaria on site and the, the mid-sized guys uh, have got about 500. So there's quite a large gap between us and, and some of our smaller competitors. And then there's probably another 20 or 30 smaller importers who, who are importing for four or five shops or even some of the big shops have got their own quarantine facility that um, that import fish. We distribute nationally and basically I've, I've got a, a very simple rule and that is if there's a bank in the particular town where you live, then, then we'll get the fish there. The freighter network of uh, planes and, and trucks that we use have got all the contracts to the major banks, so they're going into those towns uh, every day anyway, which makes it quite easy. A little bit more about us, but say we have a 4,800 square metre facility, which if my maths is right, Roy, it's, that's about 52,000 square feet in, in your measurement. Uh, it's a purpose-built facility. We've been there for, for seven years now. We're located about 20 minutes from the both the international and domestic markets, which is essential when you're dealing with a, a time-sensitive commodity such as ornamental fish. The company's been running now for 40 years. It started off supplying a couple of shops and, and we now supply... Um, about 1,500 retail stores Australia-wide. We only supply to retail. We don't go to the, uh, to the end consumer being a, um, being a wholesaler. So going back now, it sounds like a lot of different species of fish. Kind of going back to the fish now, what, what would you say would be your favorite fish now, uh, now that you've seen so many different species through uh, your work in the past as well as now through uh, Aquarium Industries? Oh, a tough question. Look, we hold uh, about 2,000 varieties of fish on site at any given time. That said, majority of our, our sales are in about 250 varieties. If I was to put a, I was backed into a corner and choose my favourite fish, look, it would certainly be a marine fish. That's where I guess my training and my passion is, is in the marine area. Probably a maroon gold-striped maroon clownfish. I did a little bit of breeding when I was going through uni with uh, clownfish and seahorses and a few other bits and pieces, but uh, I had this uh, breeding pair of gold-striped maroons that just had an amazing amount of uh, character, I guess, and um, yeah, I'd say they're probably probably my favourite. 
Now, Australia has different regulations over the past 10, 15 years. And definitely uh, because Australia is an island and has a lot of pretty unique animals you know, in your country, you know, that's definitely understandable. Can you explain maybe, again, briefly, what some of the regulations are that are different from you know, what we have here in the U.S. and, and uh, you know, some of the things that have changed over the past uh, 10, 15 years? Yeah, sure. Briefly could be interesting. The regulations <laughs> are, are, are very strict and, and some of your listeners may, may be already aware of that. I guess probably the, uh, the biggest difference between Australia and the US is that we have a very regulated list of species which we can import, so we can't import everything. And we also have a requirement to have a quarantine-approved premise, which is essentially a, a biosecure facility. So any fish that are imported into Australia get inspected at the airport by our, our government authority, who's the Australian Quarantine Inspection Service. They're looking to ensure that um, the fish that are imported are, are the permitted species and, and there's no illegal importation. But then they're also looking for other, other commodities, you know, drugs, plants and anything else that, that's banned from Australia. Look, as you pointed out correctly, we are uh, essentially an island nation. All of our country is bordered by the ocean and sort of unlike, I guess, uh, Europe, any disease that comes here either comes on, on boat or by plane, to be honest. So uh, we've got some very unique flora and fauna and rightly so, the Australian government tries to protect that. Sometimes some argue that uh, it's a bit draconian, but at the end of the day, no one wants to see their, their native flora and fauna impacted. So um, that's probably the main reason there. To go back to, to the importation, as we we're talking about, once you've got a, a quarantine approved premise, which um, is a full biosecure facility. So our particular facility is, is completely secure security entry. So you need a, a swipe card to gain access. Going into the building, uh, you step through two metre by two metre foot bars, uh, which have got sterilised chemicals within inside. We predominantly use chlorine. That's an airlock door, again, to try and prevent any, any vectors, disease, pests getting in or, or getting out. Ultimately, the government has decision as to whether a particular fish is, is released from the, our quarantine facility to be made available for sale. So um, if we have any fish which are, which are sick or, or maybe carrying a particular disease, they'll, they'll send those fish to be tested or they can ultimately just say, well, you're not taking them and, and we'll confiscate them and euthanise them. So the rules are very strict. And my understanding of the US is is even yourself, Roy, could, could ring up a, uh, a fish producer in Singapore and, and, and ask for five boxes of fish. And, and to be honest, they land, you pick them up and, and that's sort of the end of the process. But in Australia, it's, uh, it varies depending on the species. Uh, goldfish must stay in quarantine for three weeks. Cichlids and gouramis have to stay in quarantine for 14 days or two weeks and everything else, marines, live bearers, uh, tetras are, are seven days or a week. So um, that's a non-negotiable time frame and um, it makes it very difficult for us because we've got to have a holding capacity not only for what we're selling on a given day or a given week but we need that quarantine facility large enough so that the fish have got time to, to spend the, the required time. That's probably it in terms of the the importation process. In terms of other regulations, there's 
currently a, a variety of new emerging pathogens that are being researched around the world, which uh, the Australian government watches very keenly to see whether there's any implications to our local flora and fauna and whether they need to change the, uh, the regulations. There's also one which is a hot topic in Australia now, which I think yourself, Roy, has had some direct experience in with the, um, the aridoviruses, particularly at the moment with their impact on, on gourami. So there's just been a, quite a large three-year project conducted in Australia by one of the, uh, the professors over over here, looking at um, the particular virus as it stands, what its impact is and, and how it's transmitted in its carrier state with a variety of other components. And um, all the importers are waiting with bated breath at the moment because that report's due for release in uh, March next year. And it's believed that um, it will change the way we currently import fish which are infected by the, or capable of being infected by the iridovirus. And so some of the discussion that's come so far is that uh, any fish that are known carriers of iridoviruses will need to have further screening offshore at their origin. So whether that be Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, or, or a multitude of other areas we're importing fish from, and proven to be disease-free and come with a health certificate. And if they don't, then we may lose those fish within the Australian hobby. Okay. Wow. That, yeah, definitely a, a lot of stuff you guys had to think about. Well, let's take a short break and uh, we'll continue our discussion with Josiah Pitt from Australia's Aquarium Industries after these messages from our sponsors. Molly, here's your dinner. <laughs> Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Josiah Pitt of Aquarium Industries. So, Josiah, it sounds like there's definitely a lot of uh, considerations. And again, I definitely recognize all of the um, cool species that are pretty unique to Australian and uh, concerns. Let's talk a little bit more now about your wholesale retail industry in Australia. You um, do a lot of work with them. Uh, what is kind of the state of the uh, industry for you? And you've visited the U.S., so you have kind of a feel for the industry here. How would you compare the two? And, and also, do you have a chance to work with with hobbyists too, are you working primarily with just the, the pet stores? Yeah, I guess uh, as you mentioned, being in the states recently was was a was an eye opener. To be honest, to to look at the varieties of fish that are that are traded both at a at a wholesale and a retail level over there, very distinctly different compared to what we have. As I mentioned earlier, before the break, you know, we have a very restrictive 
list on what we can import into Australia and also a lot of the uh, endemic fishes that we have uh, locally. We don't see a lot of them being traded either for, for a number of different reasons. But um, yeah, look, we do, that poses a lot of challenges for us, I guess, in, a, in what I call a, uh, a stable market in terms of the varieties of fish. So when new fish species are either identified or found in the wild or, or their, their life cycle is closed in terms of being able to be bred in production, unless those particular species or that family is already included on the import list, we just can't import them. And so whereas places like the States and also UK, when you have a new fish that becomes available in, on the market, it sparks a little bit of interest and enthusiasm and people are oh, wow, check out this uh, Galaxy Rasbore or the Red Line torpedo barbs you know it, it's something new and keeps a hobby hungry i guess for us we don't have that as much so it, it means that uh, we've got to look at other avenues of, of trying to spark the interest of our hobbyists here within australia but also it's a, a challenge of of continuing to essentially sell the same fish so it means from a marketing point of view our, our marketing guys have, have got to really be on the pulse and come up with new and innovative techniques of of selling fish and and also providing information to to hobbyists as to why they should be buying certain fish or different components of of the hobby and like in the states the nano tanks have, have become quite extensive over here and, and it's really pushing those components and looking at other components as you mentioned we do only deal directly with the uh, retailers but we are very uh, close and in touch with what's going on at, at the hobby network and we've got members of our staff who are on different ornamental fish associations and and cichlid societies and native fish societies and a lot of our guys are also um, on a lot of the forums both locally and, and internationally. I guess one of the, the good things about my job is I work with, with a team of 50 people uh, who are all very passionate about what they, what they do. Anyone who's ever worked commercially in ornamental fish would know that you certainly don't do it for the money. So that helps a great deal because it allows myself and, and the other managers to really get a good understanding of what's happening at that hobby level. Some of the stuff I guess our, our marketing team are, are doing is we do a lot of training for our customers. It's really important that when you're selling any product, fish or, or any other commodity, that um, the people that you're selling it to have a good understanding of, of that product. So we provide a lot of that merchandising information and training so that our customers have a good understanding on, on what they're doing. We've also just recently released a fantastic initiative, which, is, which pardon the pun, has gone viral over here and has um, been an initiative where we now offer free training to anyone that's got the internet, to be honest there, Roy. So uh, if I can do a blatant plug, anyone that uh, wants to check out our training, aquariumindustries.com.au, it's a very basic training scheme or package. It's targeted at those people that are either very new to the industry or or thinking of getting into the hobby, it talks about the different species that are available, talks about water quality, basic diseases, um, compatibility, so what fish you sh should put with what fish. And it's, uh, it's a program that we are very, very passionate about. And being a wholesaler, it's very hard for us to go out and, and advertise to the hobbyist or to the end consumer. So this is the main reason we, we participate in a lot of the fish associations to say, yes, this is who we are. And our marketing team has got a, a goal over the next three years. And that goal is for, for a hobbyist to walk into a retail store and basically ask, are these fish from Aquarium Industries? And, and hopefully if they say no, they'll walk out, which will then drive that shop 
to can then potentially buy fish from us. Some of the other stuff we've also started doing too is is branding. So we're putting our logo out at the, at the consumer level. So we've just recently started selling our own frozen food line, which we've worked very hard with our partners over in, in China. And we've provided specific diets to ensure that we've got all the correct vitamins and minerals in the diets and that's been a great success over in Australia with, with a lot of feedback that uh, we've got a very slick-looking packaging, but at the same time, the, uh, the food is very ingestible and digestible by the fish. Some of the other components, again, that we do, as I said, with the merchandising with our marketing guys, they do what we call shelf talkers or tank labels, same as you'd find, I guess, in a Walmart. You know, it's got the product name and the price list. What we do that's quite unique, though, is for each species, we have about 20 bits of information which sits back of house on a database. The pH requirements, the water temperature requirements, the food requirements, compatibility issues, general hardness, carbonate hardness, uh, as I said, a whole variety. Now, what the, uh, the retailer can do is they've got the ability to select any four of those information points and put them onto these tank charts, which they can then put on their, uh, on their tank so they don't need to write price lists or any other information on the uh, on the tank. And coupled with that is a, a QR code. Now, that QR code links back to our, our website and uh, provides more in-depth information for the consumer about how to care for that particular fish. So if you've got a neon tetra in a tank, um, it'll talk about the, the requirement of the pH, what sort of food you should be feeding it, and then this QR code, which... As we know, everyone's got smartphones these days, so click on that uh, QR code and it takes you straight to our website and then the consumer can not only take the fish home but they've got now access to uh, all the care requirements they need for that particular fish. That sounds good. You guys are definitely uh, making use of the internet and all the information out there. So you mentioned uh, in your talk just a couple of seconds ago a little bit about native species. Now, a lot of the uh, U.S. folks are really interested in uh, the rainbow fishes, which are you know a really beautiful group of, of fish coming out of Australia and you know areas around Australia. Can you tell us a little bit about the status of the rainbow fish in Australia? Yeah, sure. Well, rainbow fishes are uh, actually the most speciose group of freshwater fishes that occur in um, both Australia and New Guinea. Most of your listeners will be aware that New Guinea uh, is very close and once upon a time was connected to Australia, so we share a lot of uh, similar native species. Rainbow fishes are endemic to Australia and, uh, and New Guinea. And uh, since about, uh, I think, 1970, where people really started to, to research them, They've found that, as I mentioned, it's quite a diverse group of, of fish. But despite that, we still, you know, we still don't know a lot about these particular fish. And, and certainly in Australia, the variations within a, a particular species is quite high, depending on the particular creek. So your listeners will be aware that you'll often see a, a particular fish and then it, its variant will be a, uh, a particular creek that occurs in Australia, probably similar to the uh, Tanganyikan cichlids as well, where you'll have a, a particular zone within the lakes which differentiates slight I guess, variants of that particular fish. As you said, yeah, beautiful colours. These things uh, got some amazing iridescent blues and reds and, and yellows and deep purples. and They're an absolutely gorgeous, slender-looking fish. Really easy to look after, to be honest. They're not highly traded in Australia. The main reason for that is, uh, as I said, we still don't know a lot about this particular group of fish. 
And so the Australian government is uh, restrictive in, in the numbers that can be uh, taken from the wild. But there's certainly a very passionate group called Anchor, which is the Australian New Guinea Freshwater Fishers from Association from Memory. And they do a lot of trading amongst the, their members. And there's a quite a strong program where people that have any breeding success in their tanks at home, that they'll result in larvae. They'll, they'll ship around Australia into different zones to create, I guess, uh, backups should those particular fish uh, in that tank die that we've got backup varieties of all those species. Probably similar to what's happening with the, with the Rising Tide program over in the States at the moment where as soon as eggs hatch, they're shipped around the country to a, a whole variety of people who've got the skill set to, to raise the larvae. So with the rainbow fish you mentioned, they're pretty hardy. Uh, what would uh, someone maybe thinking about keeping rainbow fish want to need to do to keep them healthy and, and happy? As I said, they're very simple to look after. And given that where they originate, the conditions can vary, I guess. And so keeping the, uh, the water qualities bang on like you generally need to do for a marine tank, for example, is not as important. Uh, they are quite hardy. They certainly seem to prefer a, a planted tank. And, and we think that the main reason for that is that it's more keeping with their, their natural environment. Where these rainbow fish are found naturally, as I mentioned, it's in little creeks and there's lots of bushes overhanging and and algae growing throughout the creek. So having a planter tank seems to do well and it, and it really brings out their bright colours as well. And then you've got the stock standard care arrangements with any any tank, you know, don't keep it in direct sunlight and try and maintain the temperature, maintain the pH as well. And um, yeah, they're a very easy, hardy fish and, and will be very rewarding to anyone that wants to look after them. Okay. Well, let's uh, move over to the marine side, which I know you really, really enjoy as well. And in the US, definitely at a lot of public aquaria, um, the leafy and the weedy sea dragons, when they first came out a while back, they were just considered stunning. And, you know, they still are today. Um, what can you tell us about the leafy and weedy sea dragons and their kind of status in Australia now? I guess, firstly, I've got one word for these two fish, if we can call them fish. Amazing. And uh, for any of your listeners that are close by to the, uh, I think there's a Florida Aquarium, the Georgia Aquarium, and even SeaWorld in Orlando, go and check them out. These are almost alien-like creatures. They're very inquisitive, very graceful creatures, and then I've got a, an amazing ability to uh, to blend in with their with their natural environment. In terms of their status over here, there's only one collector. It's a very highly regulated industry, and severe penalties are in place, including jail, if, if you're caught with either the leafy or the weedy sea dragons. My understanding at the moment is that the collector has, is only able, able to take one egg-bearing leafy male each year and 10 egg-bearing male weedies each year. From that, he, he obviously will rear the juveniles that, that he captures from those males and it's those juveniles that he's reared that are then uh, sold into the, uh, into the public aquaria. I did hear figures of uh, upwards of $8,000 for an individual uh, leafy sea dragon in, in the last couple of years. Before you continue, you mentioned uh, bearing. So I know some of the some of the folks are familiar with the fact that the male seahorses have uh, brood pouches. Now, can you explain how the uh, the dragons handle their eggs? What do the males have to do to to take care of their eggs? My understanding is very similar. 
processes uh, as the seahorses. Basically, the, the males will, will care and, and look after the eggs and the juveniles on their pouch, basically underneath their, underneath their body, and they uh, offer a, an amazing amount of, of parental care. No one really knows a lot about the, the survival of, uh, from egg through to, through to juvenile and even the, uh, the public aquaria, both locally and, and over in the US, I think are very uh, protective of that. No one's successfully bred leafy dragons in captivity. And that's probably, uh, there's a lot of money being invested in that, not only in the States, but over in Australia. To be the first to, to get that through, they have got the, uh, the weedy sea dragons that have been able to close that life cycle, but the leafy is still, I guess, the ultimate prize that hasn't been, uh, hasn't been landed yet. And um, the competition, I know, is very fierce, particularly between uh, Florida, Georgia and, and SeaWorld over in the States. So uh, watch this space and, and certainly once they, uh, once they close it, you can guarantee uh, they'll make uh, a big splash and dance about it. We're kind of getting close to our time. What would you say are some of the most important challenges for Australia's industry now and, and over the next five to ten years? Probably in lines with what, what we mentioned before, and, and that is not only for us personally, but for the, the whole Australian industry is to try and uh, continue to invigorate the industry without having new species that we can import. That's going to be a challenge. Certainly, uh, potential changes within within government regulations is going to be a uh, be a challenge as well. I don't look at them as challenges. I look at them as opportunities. And so those that are that are clever enough to take this with two hands will do well. Some of the other issues that we've got, as we mentioned before, potential emerging pathogens, which we all need to be mindful of. One of the things we didn't discuss is that along with our import permits in Australia, we've got a group of fishes which the government has listed on a grey list. And basically a grey list is fish that can't be imported into uh, into Australia. Now the government's looking at at changing that so that a fish is either it's imported or it becomes noxious, meaning that you can't have it. So there's a bit of toing and froing at the moment with the government as to what will happen that. So that's going to be a challenge over the next five years. And just ensuring that, that when people get into the hobby, we keep them. There's a lot of stats being thrown around that suggest that 70% of people that enter into the hobby leave the hobby within the first 12 months uh, for a variety of reasons, namely they view that it's too hard. And that's probably the main driving factor that, that led to us putting this training, free training package available to the consumer so that we can train these guys so that we don't lose them from the hobby. Um, real quick follow-up. So um, in terms of any of the lists, if a new species comes out that is really of interest, there's no way that the Australian government would reconsider the list or it's just too hard legislatively to even change that, those lists at all. Legislatively, it's difficult and it comes with the fact that if you want to add a fish to the, the import list, you've got to provide basically a scientific report including a, an impact, uh, environmental impact statement that provides evidence to the government that if this particular fish did come into Australia and did escape and got into the native environment, that it wouldn't affect any of our native fish and flora. Now, the problem with that is when these fish first become available, no one really knows anything about it. So there's no science out there to really support that, which makes it difficult. Coupled with that is the cost. It's a very costly process to put that in together to try and get that over the line. In the last five to 10 years, I think we've put up 15 species that we wanted added to the list and we've only got one. And so the, the cost and the time to the importer is usually not worth the, uh, the time and effort, to be honest. Okay, that makes sense then. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. Uh, I want to thank our guest, Josiah Pitt, and our producer, Mark Winter, for making this show possible. Josiah, do you have any final words or information that might be useful for our listeners? 
I used to have a, a few funny anecdotes when I worked up on the up in the pearl farms of uh, you know be careful out there and don't get eaten by crocs. But uh, I don't think they're quite as uh, insulation. But uh, look, I just say all the listeners that are out there, whether you've you've been in the the hobby for forty years or you, or you've been involved for forty minutes, it's uh, it's a fantastic hobby to uh, get involved in. It's been around. For hundreds of years, I guess, and um, enjoy it. Challenge yourself. I guess the next step is, uh, particularly for those that have been in it for a while, is uh, try and close the life cycle of some of these fish. Start breeding. Get involved and, um, yeah, enjoy. Great. That sounds great. Well, thanks again, Josiah, for joining us. Please be sure to check out Josiah's web pages. The links for uh, websites he discussed will be on Aquarium Mania on his guest website. I encourage all of you to visit my Aquarium Mania blog on Pet Life Radio. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at petliferadio.com. If you're over in Florida, please be sure to visit the Aquarium Mania exhibit at the Florida Aquarium in Tampa, one of my favorite aquariums. And until next time, please visit your local aquarium stores, keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy, and definitely keep a lookout for fish from the land down under. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.